Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In this series, we explore the landscape of students, smartphones, and social media, asking global experts to explain the hard truths about the mental health decline among youth on campuses around the world and inspire us with the evidence-based strategies that will turn the tide. Thank you for being here. This season on youth mental health and flourishing on campus was inspired by the work I began last academic year with Virginia Tech. I've also been digging deep into the work of Jonathan Haidt and Jean Twenge, who have created a collaborative review of smartphones and social media's negative impact on adolescent mental health. And of course, this year I launched Jomo Campus, a first of its kind digital wellness program to serve North America's largest universities with digital well-being. Through awareness building, inspirational campaigns, and education, we're empowering students to embrace the joy of missing out and put it into practice. So that's what this whole season is about. And this particular season on campus mental health is sponsored by Jomo Campus. So if you'd like to learn more about our work there, you can go to Jomo, that's J-O-M-O, campus.com. Well, I consider myself a learner and I love following my curiosities and questions. That's what set me on this entire trajectory in my work with Jomo and digital well-being. My questions and curiosities lead me into relationships, like when my colleague, Dr. Beth Green, who I hope is listening to this episode, the provost and academic dean at Tyndale University here in Toronto, introduced me to U.S. educational consultant Eric Ellefson, now an active Jomo advocate, shout out to Eric if you're listening, who led me to the work of John Eckert. John is a professor of educational leadership at Baylor University. He taught and coached intermediate and middle school students outside of Chicago and Nashville for 12 years. After completing his doctorate at Vanderbilt University in 2008, he was selected as a teaching ambassador fellow at the U.S. Department of Education, where he worked in both the Bush and Obama administrations on teaching quality issues. Very cool. For the past 10 years, he has prepared teachers at Wheaton College. Dr. Eckert has conducted research for the U.S. Department of Education, the Carnegie Foundation, the National Network of State Teachers of the Year, the National Institute for Excellence in Teaching, and the Center for Teaching Quality. He is the author of Leading Together, Teachers and Principals, Improving Student Outcomes, also The Novice Advantage, Fearless Practice for Every Teacher, and his newest book, which we will discuss at length in this interview, Just Teaching, Feedback, Engagement, and Well-Being for Each Student. Dr. Eckert provides academic leadership for the Baylor Center for School Leadership 
and is the program director of Baylor's MA in School Leadership. In this episode, we discuss the threats to effective education in today's digital climate, teaching strategies to address digital distraction, and the personal digital well-being strategies he employs. You're going to enjoy this one. Welcome, John. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Christina. So where are you joining me from today? I am at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. So it's going to be over 100 degrees again today for the seemingly third month in a row. So uh, it's great to be with you. Awesome. So just let's start with your passion for education. You know, you've got a very exciting and full background in terms of educational leadership. Like what gets you up in the morning these days? So there's a, a quote that a early childhood educator in Virginia gave me once. His name was John Holland. And it stuck with me, I guess it was about 15 years ago. He just said it in an offhanded way, but I think it captures what I think gets most teachers up in the morning every day. And he said this, no profession can compete with the spark between souls that occurs between teachers and students. Mm. And so when we get to see our part that we play in helping students become more of who they were created to be. That's the joy of whether you're working with adults or with kids, that's the joy of what we get to do in teaching because we have meaningful work to do every day. I love that. Um, I was on the schoolyard this morning. It was day two here in Canada for back to school. We've got three kids, obviously two parents, so we couldn't be in all places at all times yesterday. But today I went to the schoolyard to connect with our youngest. Ironically, it was our youngest who didn't get a parent <laughs> to go on his first day because he's like, been at that school for a long time, knew the ropes. He was like, peace out. I'm good. Kind of classic third child. Like, I don't really right. need you. <laughs> but I got to be face to face with his incredible teacher who actually needed to go on leave last year. And I think we've seen a lot of that, at least in Canada, we've seen a lot of leaves sort of through the pandemic and post pandemic and a lot of gaps and educators physically being present on campus. But she told me she actually specifically asked to teach this group of kids again this year. She wanted another crack at being with these kids. And you could just see that spark that you're describing, you know, in her eyes and her face is ready to get back to it. Um, such an incredible connection that, you know, other than a parent, it's really the educators that have that huge, right, secondary influence on our kids and our teens and our, our young adults. I love that quote. Thanks for sharing that. So, you know, this series we're doing on the JomoCast is really exploring campus mental health specifically. And I'd love to hear from your perspective what the largest threat to effective education is in today's digital climate. Right. So the the book that I just, that just came out this year uh, has been selling really well. And I think my writing is adequate, but I think it's the stories in it that help get at the threat. But I think we address the threat with the life-giving joy that comes from things that aren't mediated through the clicks, likes, and swipes that you get on the phone because mm -hmm. that's a poor proxy for actual connection. And so the book came out of COVID and then post-COVID, what are schools doing well to ensure that each kid is well, that they're engaged, and that they're getting meaningful feedback? Many times, smartphones, social media, the constant digital distraction impede all three of those things. Mm -hmm. So 
the book really just highlights here's what schools are doing because there's amazing stuff going on all over the world i was just up in toronto two weeks ago in oakville at a school where they're doing amazing stuff but one of their biggest frustrations their two biggest challenges that they have right now are smartphones and the way they're eroding the social fabric of the school and distracting from learning and cheating which is largely mediated through digital devices and so those things make feedback really hard. And if those three things are the core of teaching, the title of the book is just teaching because I push back on the idea that anyone is just a teacher. Mm. If we know that teaching is the profession that makes all others possible, we should never disempower ourselves in a way that says we're just a teacher. So just teaching, when we address feedback, engagement, well-being, not for some students or even all students, but for each student, mm. that's teaching for justice and flourishing. And so certainly there are there's digital technology. I mean, the fact that we're able to talk with you in Canada and me in Texas and do this podcast, it's a beautiful thing. As long as it's a tool and not a distraction from the power that happens between teacher and student in the relationship that is that spark between souls that I mentioned in the first question. Mm. I love that you talked about technology being a tool. The last episode that actually came out today that I, re I recorded with the founder of the Digital Wellness Lab at Harvard, he was talking about, you know, the right tools for the right job and really asking that question, you know, each and every day in our personal lives, but also in an educational context. So what would your answer have been for those Oakville educators in terms of how to best use the tools within the classroom and the broader school community? Well, the article that hit me this summer about this with Jonathan Haidt's article in The Atlantic on June 6th, where he basically makes the claim, he doesn't basically, he makes the claim schools should ban smartphones. And, I, and my immediate reaction was like, well, that's pretty extreme. And he lays out five approaches that schools have taken. Well, there's really six. There's one to have no policy on it, but most schools have some policy, whether it's enforced or not is an open question and creates a lot of issues if you don't enforce consistently what the policy is. But my solution had always been, well, during class, let's, you know, have smartphones, take them up, put them in the little slots at the front of the class. They have, there's a lot of ways to do it. Just keep them from that distraction during class because while you can use smartphones to engage students, they can look things up, they can do things like Slido and Mentimeter. There's a lot of tools you can use to engage students. The trade-offs are probably not worth it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, hey, during a lesson, put them up. The challenge this, that hate makes to that in the article is that which, by the way, he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, which down in the U.S. at least has gotten a lot of traction. And I think this ties in nicely to it. The, the challenge to separating the student from their phone during the lesson, that's good. It, it forces them to pay attention to each other and to the teacher. But as soon as class is over, it's like giving a crack addict back his crack. As soon as class is over, when they go in the halls, now you have this pent up demand to see what's going on online. So you're breaking down the social fabric of the school because those hallway interactions are not happening in the incarnational way that they're meant to with person to person. Uh, kids are constantly on their phones. And then at lunch, you have the same thing because now you have this pent up demand for it. And he used this term, which I'd never heard, maybe you have called fubbing, which is phone snubbing. Yeah. And when I read it, I was like, oh, and it looked like the term had been coined in 2018. So it's not a new term. He was citing a research article from 2018. I was like, wow, we do that 
all the time to our spouses, to our kids, to our peers. And what it communicates is whatever happened on my phone is more important than the conversation I'm having with you and you're right in front of me. And so it erodes that social cohesion. And that's why he makes the argument that these should be removed. And I was pretty convinced by the time I was done, I was like, yeah, I think kids would be better off Mm -hmm. if for seven or eight hours a day, they could be separated from them. And you see it most, I'll give you this last example. When kids go away to camp in the summer, a lot of camps still have the policy that phones won't be there, both for counselors, that's who I see as college students, but then for K through 12 students that are off at camp, they don't get their phones. Now, they don't like the idea going in. And for the first two or three days, they're literally going through withdrawal. But by day four, five or six, they're like, oh, I'm having this powerful experience with people who are here. And so I would like school days to be more of that where for seven or eight hours a day, we can focus on the people we're with. We could use technology as a tool, but if it's a school-issued device or it's a device, there are ways to limit the access that social media has to kids because no matter how interesting the teacher is, the engineers that have come out of Stanford who are being paid to make our kids products (laughs) to keep their attention, they're going to win every time in that battle uh, because they're getting paid a lot more money and they're really smart too. And they have a device that travels with every kid in their pocket and it creates real problems for learning. I can go into more details of some of the findings on that, but really it's the social cohesion that I'm also concerned about now that until this summer, I wasn't as concerned about, but now I think that's almost equally important to the the lack of instructional gains that we see in classrooms where smartphones are ubiquitous. Mm. I um, have been doing some work with Washington and Lee University in Virginia. And so one of their traditions is a speaking tradition um, where they're encouraged to make eye contact and say hello to every person that passes them on the campus. Of course, if you're you're leaving a classroom and there's hundreds of students, of course, you're not expected to like be a maniac and like say hello to every person that's standing there. But, you know, walking across the campus, across the green, you know, you acknowledge one another. And they have seen a huge decline in engagement in that particular practice since the emergence of AirPods specifically, Um, you know, creating a literal you know, separate worlds that we you know all exist in as we walk through a neighborhood and we're trying to maximize our time, right? Make the best of our listening to a podcast, learning, you know, doing a phone call. You know, these are things that I do as well. But I thought that was such a, a beautiful tradition. And it's a tradition that they're trying to reconnect to, that's that they're trying to encourage their students to re-engage in. And what the studies show is all those little micro connections throughout the day, right? We kind of like downplay them, like chatting with the barista at Starbucks or just nodding at someone or saying good morning, you know, but actually all of those micro connections have huge positive impacts on our well-being. So getting phones out of schools, I mean, you know, I've done a a large digital detox. It's what's, you know, sparked my whole work in in terms of this space, uh, 31 days completely off the internet. And it is true that the complete removal of something is so much easier than all of that cognitive effort, right? All of that daily or even momentary uh, decision-making that we have to do um, around, do I use this technology? Do I not use this technology? Do I download this app? Just the complete removal of it really does create that ability to focus and do deep work and be present. I think it is a gift that we as 
parents and educators can offer, right, to young people. Like you said, I love that example of camp. You know, my kids were away at camp and it is, it's it's like, it's this great equalizer where you go to an event and they do have like a phone check-in or even, you know, some of the frosh weeks or um, like Greek life, like they still remove phones when they're going through, you know, um, those early weeks. And they seem to be one of the only groups that continue to do that because they understand that there's some kind of threshold of discomfort that you need to get across, right, to actually engage. Um, we're seeing students being tethered to their phones because they want to maintain those connections with family and friends right back in their hometowns. But that's, you know, hindering them in terms of making connections more locally. So easier said than done, easier done in K to 12 than it is in the college campuses. Let's talk about college campuses for a minute. What are some opportunities you see there in terms of digital well-being? Yeah. So the Surgeon General just came out with a report that 46 or 47% of teenagers said that looking at social media makes them feel worse. So there's an awareness. I mean, and that's got to be even higher because that's self-reported, but that's, you know, almost half of them saying this makes me feel worse. So there's an awareness among our college students that, hey, we don't really love this. It feels like a necessary evil to them. And so uh, there's a great I'm going to go back to high school for a minute, and then I'll jump to college. There was a great um, interview done with this school in Los Angeles, California, that had removed smartphones from their students. They had phone lockers. You checked them at the beginning of the day, you got them back. And this student's being interviewed, and he said, you know, now basically all that's left for us to do is pay attention to the teacher and to each other. And it's like, that's the win. And so I, I think in the immediate term, kids are going to resist that and they're going to feel disconnected in the same way we do when we give up uh, technology for any period of time. It's like, what am I missing out on? That's your podcast. A title is, is great. There is joy in it, but you don't feel that right away. You just feel the FOMO. But if so, this year I teach a, um, I only get to teach one undergraduate course. And so for this course, it's a capstone leadership course, all different majors from across campus that are minoring in leadership come in. So they're mostly juniors and seniors. They're all there by choice because, you know, nobody cares that much about a minor. It's like, oh, I really want to get this minor. If they're in the class, they want to be in the class. And so I've had amazing classes for the last four years. But this year, I decided that I was going to give them, they have to get about 700 pages worth of reading because I take the best chapter article from 25 authors that, that I've accumulated over 28 years in education. I'm like, hey, these are the best articles I've found on leadership. That's the course pack. And it's always available on Canvas, which is our learning management system. And they can do their responses digitally and they can read them digitally. But what they are to bring to class, I was like, you don't need to bring any devices to class. All you need is the course pack. You have to come with the course pack. That's it. And so we don't have any digital devices out. I'll use slides and videos for things on mine, but they don't need anything out other than the readings and the 15 of them. And we all sit around a table and we discuss those things. And for 75 minutes, my contention is that all you need are the readings and the rest of us in the classroom. And that's it. And at first I was like, hey, they're going to be resistant to this. But there was no pushback. There was no concern. And we did a Paideia seminar, which is a... a particular form of Socratic seminar the other day, and they were so locked in and engaged. And I've yet to have a single kid miss a class uh, this wow. semester. So I think there is something freeing in that. We'll see by the end of the semester how they feel, because I'm going to survey them at the end and see how they, they feel about this. But I think it's been a huge win so far 
we'll see where it goes. Because when I teach graduate students, they are so tethered to their jobs and they're meeting in the evening or they're meeting on weekends or they're meeting virtually that it is so hard for them to be connected to each other, even though they want to be because of the digital distraction that they have. So I'm like, with my undergrad students, for those 75 minutes, those are sacred minutes. We are going to do that time so that we can increase the likelihood of those sparks between souls that happen between students and students and then teachers and students as well. I love that. And I love that positive framing of all you need is, as opposed yeah. to don't bring that device, right? Right, right. Yeah. It's putting them in the driver's seat. It's actually allowing them to be a leader, right? This is the opportunity. All you need is this. And they have their devices with them, which is unfortunate because the research says even if it's in your pocket or put away in a bag, your memory and fluid intelligence decrease. So I haven't said, hey, I don't want these in class. I was like, I just don't want to see them out. You don't need them. You just need the reading in this. And they've been great about that. I have mm. one student with a learning plan. She has an IP. And so she's allowed to use a device as needed. And she's done it one day where she's used it to help her. And I'm like, hey, that's fine because that's part of her IEP. Yeah. But everyone else has been super respectful. And I think, I don't know, we're five classes in. I, I'll be curious to see how, if they feel like they miss it in the class or if they feel freed up from it. I don't know if they're quite at that point yet, because again, it's one 75 minute block in the day. It's not a seven hour K through 12 day or it's not, you know, so we'll, we'll see what they think. But so far for me as the instructor, I feel like it's a win. Yeah. I would be curious to hear what the post assessment is on that. Um, if they look forward to it, even because of that break, do they actually print their package off? Is that what you're saying? So I actually, to reduce any barriers to this, I printed them all. We took the cost of it on the department and put them in binders with dividers for each day's reading. So it's as organized. And I just, the first day of class, we handed it to them. I said, Hey, I realize I'm asking you to do something that's not typical, but here it is. There's no hindrance to actually having the materials you need in class. I said, you don't have to bring the whole binder. You can bring the reading for the day, but just make sure you have the reading for the day with you. And then when we have our cumulative discussions, you have the whole pack with you because we have five of those over the course of the semester. So on those days, they got to drag around a two inch binder with them. But, uh, you know, which is a burden, but it is, I think, worth the freedom of being in class together with just the readings and each other. I think that's so smart that you had it printed off because, yeah, not all students have printers A and B. Right. Yeah, they don't want to take on any additional costs. But what I am hearing from students is that they do want to have those analog paper breaks. And obviously, the cost of physical books is very prohibitive. In many cases, the ebook is always cheaper. So you're giving them that opportunity to switch into a different modality, which is awesome. I love that. Any other examples um, that you've seen maybe with other colleagues who are being really intentional about maybe how they engage their students in class? Um, that's a big one, right? Is like all the social anxiety, the, the lack of social skills, especially coming out of the pandemic for those who are particularly locked down. I live in a city that was one of the most locked down cities in the world through the pandemic. And so we're still edging our way back. What are, what are some other good examples you've seen? 
So I was just in Australia for three weeks and I got to get into eight schools. I gave six talks all over the country. And what I was amazed at there, they were also very slow to come out of uh, lockdown. So they're still, it feels like compared to Texas, who was not slow to come out of lockdown, they were, it was very rapid. They're a, a year or two behind where we are at as far as things feeling like it's normal. And so what I, I noticed there that they're doing amazingly well is they integrate indoor-outdoor spaces really well. Mm. So a lot of their classrooms, more like college campuses, where you go in one building for a class and then you leave, go outside and then you're in another building and they've actually built nature into their schools, which is amazing. And sadly, my first thought being in a, in, from the US is like, well, how do you protect these campuses against school shooters? And they're like, they don't, don't even exist. think about that. Yeah. They're like, we don't even think about that here. I was like, what an amazing blessing. Yeah. And so they've done a nice job integrating indoor, outdoor, and none of them. I did. I had a ballroom of 300 educators from about 200 schools, and we had them do a human continuum of where they fall on digital media policies and, and phones. Almost, I'd say 80% of them do not allow phones during the school day at all. And so they've just pushed them out of the day to kind of build that interpersonal connection. And so that's amazing because it's a lot easier to keep the toothpaste in the tube than push toothpaste back in. So once you've made the policies that phones can be out, it's hard to it's hard to push them back. But moving beyond the phones, I mean, the point of the book was highlighting how educators were addressing well-being of each student, which you could do that sometimes through a text message or something. There's ways to use social media to address well-being, but really it's this incarnational person-to-person -person piece that addresses that. And so one of the strategies that I lay out, and I think that works from kindergarten through adult educators, if you're having a hard time connecting with a kid for whatever reason, you're not making that connection. There's a strategy called the two by 10. If you take two minutes every day for 10 days, and you find a way either before class, after class, uh, in the hall, at lunch, before school, after school, to talk to a kid that you're having trouble connecting with about anything. It doesn't have, there doesn't have to be any point to it other than I'm going to spend two minutes talking to the student. After 10 days, 85% of the disruptive behaviors that have been occurring are gone from that student. And I think it's because the student and the teacher change because of that interaction. Now, it's hard because if a student doesn't connect with you and you're trying to talk to them for one, two, three, four days in a row, they're going to become standoffish. Like, why is this person trying to talk to me? But you as the educator, that's your job. It's not your job to be their friend. Mm. It's your job to be their educator and build that relationship. So you have to keep pushing through it. So that's one of my favorite strategies. I've highlighted that one in a couple books because I feel like that's a pretty simple strategy. You can't do it for every kid because there's not enough time in the day, but you have to target the kids who you really don't feel like you're connecting with mm. and then be deliberate about finding that time. Because once you do that, it pays big dividends. The, the last thing I would say there is feedback is key. And so how do you get feedback from your students to know that you're meeting their needs? Because ultimately I define feedback as purpose-driven wisdom for growth. And so educators and students need that. Now, again, sometimes that can be mediated through a digital technology, but I still feel like that person to person, let's figure this out together. How can we make this class better for everyone and for you particularly? Um, that can be helpful. And so I use this work from Christopher Emden, who's at NYU. Uh, he calls them co-generative dialogues, where you get four mm -hmm. students in to help you improve the class in two to three minute conversations once a week. It 
requires vulnerability on the part of the students and the teacher, but the goal is to improve your practices. And so I found that to be pretty helpful, even with college students. I use my grad students as well. So I have people in my classes who are older than I am, who there's tons of stuff I can learn from them. And I can learn just as much from a third grader about how my teaching is effectively engaging them uh, with feedback. Again, sometimes that's nice through a smartphone because you can get anonymous feedback right away. But I do think that interpersonal back and forth of learning to be vulnerable and trust each other, that's pretty vital. And it's way easier to do that face to face. The book we're referencing is John's most recent book, Just Teaching, Feedback, Engagement, and Well-Being for Each Student. John, my final question for you is, what personal digital well-being strategies do you practice in all of your very, very varied roles that you serve in? Well, I'm assuming you've read a lot of Cal Newport, correct? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. So love Cal Newport. I do think he has the benefit of being a best-selling author as at Georgetown. He's a faculty member, so he can be bad at, at email. That's the strategy I'd love to employ. <laughs> like yeah. have people yeah. not expect me to respond to email and they stop emailing. Like that's brilliant. Most of us cannot do that. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to apply that one. But for me, I have no games on my phone, nothing that's there to intentionally. I, Angry Birds got me a number of years ago. And I was like, why am I playing? Why am I wasting so much time on Angry Birds? So after that, no games. I appreciate I also that professional moment. Yes. Yeah. It was, I was embarrassed. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not connecting with my own children because I'm playing this stupid game, trying to get three stars at every level. So I, yeah, then I, I don't use any social media on my phone that is distracting to me. I don't find X or Twitter or whatever we call it now. I don't find that distracting. I spend five minutes a day promoting our programs because it's free advertising, mm-hmm. but I don't get sucked into that. So I can do that for five minutes a day. Um, and then I do now, with my wife's urging, really try to take a Sabbath from basically from sundown Saturday night to sundown Sunday night where I don't do any work. Now, I will still watch a screen if we're watching a football game or I will check uh, my phone for things. I'm not completely unplugged. I think that would actually be amazing and probably should be my next step, but I'm not doing work on those days. I ended up working about 70 or 80 hours a week because I love my work, but I need that time off on Sundays. And so that to me has been pretty helpful. I think that's just a wise practice for all of us to find Sabbath time where we separate away and we just have time to relax, enjoy our families, worship something bigger than ourselves mm-hmm. and find the the meaning and the rhythms of a week. And I think there's also benefit to doing that each day. So I try to start my day with some time just thinking about, hey, what do I need to do today? What What is required of me to be to serve others well? And so I try to start each morning with that, with some time for me reading scripture and praying and uh, finding where that balances for me that day. And when I don't do that, I'm a much worse human being for the day. So I think there's the daily practice. I think there's weekly practice. And I think there's also benefit annually from taking breaks and actually unplugging, but I could be way better at it. So certainly do not use me as the model. And my ultimate goal is to be bad at email, but I don't think that's happening anytime (laughs) soon. Anything else you'd like to share on this topic before we wrap up today? 
No, I do love the I love the fact that you're you're putting this out here. I think we need to really lean into the joy of of missing out because of the joy of being drawn to things is, you know, Augustine said, you know, we need to reorient our loves. What what gives us energy? What gives us life? And I don't think mm-hmm. phones ultimately are the answer for that. And I think they we constantly think about what benefit they can bring without thinking about the trade-offs. So I love the way you've positioned it and I'm grateful for your work. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review it, or share it with a friend. You're the key to spreading JOMO. The internet is not what it used to be. You need a roadmap to thrive in the digital age. I've created a new free JOMO guide, and it's available now at christinacrook.com. JOMO is the joy of missing out on the right things. But sometimes it's difficult to know what those right things are. I'll guide you through a simple four-step digital house cleaning process to clear away your digital clutter and make it easier to get at what really matters. That's the joy of missing out. Get your free Jomo guide today at christinacrook.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.